0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your
1: confidence journey today with Byte. Thanks for joining us for another special edition of Take Two. Joining us today is Senator Mike Lee. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Coming in after the debate last night, how did it feel? It was great.
0: We got to talk about issues and got to make my arguments. My opponent made his.
1: Uh, Today, there's a lot of issues that we want to get to. Uh, Before we get to that, though, I think it was just a few days ago on Fox News, you were asking for Senator Romney's endorsement. Why is that important in this race? Because a lot of people look back to even a few months ago when he said, well, they're both friends, I don't want to. And when I was speaking to the senator in March, he said, I don't know if anyone wants my endorsement because it may not be good for them. It could be good or bad. Why would you want it now?
0: Well, the point I've been trying to make is that Republicans should want a Republican majority in the Senate. There's one Republican in the race, and that's me. My opponent has been endorsed by the Democratic Party. He actively courted the Democratic endorsement. He voted for Joe Biden, campaigned for Joe Biden. And look, if it uh, walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, if it has web feet, like, like a duck, in this case, it's a Democrat. So what we need right now is a counterbalance to Joe Biden's out of control administration best way to bring that under control is with a Republican majority. And so ideally, we'd want to have all Republicans uh, supporting my candidacy. I, uh, look, Mitt Romney and I are good friends. We've got a good relationship. Uh, we've got a good relationship now. We will after this race is over. And uh, so uh, I, I respect his judgment if he doesn't feel comfortable doing it because he's got two good friends in the race. I'll respect that.
1: Let's dig into the issues. A lot of people will be getting their ballots in the mail today, tomorrow, sometime this week. They're headed out. So election day isn't only election day, so people making up their minds right now. As you're out and about and talking to people um, in the districts here in Utah, what is the number one concern they're talking to you about that they want to see change on or that they want to see happen in Congress?
0: The number one concern, in fact, the number one, two, and three concern combined is inflation. It's what I hear about from one end of the state to the other. We're just talking to a single mom of three the other day who works two jobs to support her young family. She's taken on a third job just so that she can support them. The average Utah family is spending an additional $949 every single month on their basic household expenses relative to January of 2021, relative to the day Joe Biden took office. And in fact, uh, as it's experienced in Utah since that date, that inflation rate in Utah is 16%. This is hurting everyone, but it's especially hurting uh, lower income people uh, the most who find that uh, you know, most of them haven't had a pay raise since then. Those few who were lucky enough to have one have not had a pay raise that is equivalent to 16%. And so uh, they're having to work harder and harder just to buy the same basic necessities, cutting out luxury items. This is brought about as a result of runaway spending, uh, runaway multi-trillion dollar deficits that Joe Biden has championed and rammed through the Democratic-controlled Congress.
1: What can Congress do about it? Uh, President Biden right now, I think in his most recent remarks, said, you know, this is a worldwide problem. Everyone's dealing with inflation. We're dealing with inflation. So, you know, maybe there's not anything specifically we have to do with it. Is there something Congress can do? Because we can't change the spending that's happened in the past. So what do we do now to fix it in the future and make real change for people? Because this seems like something we're going to be stuck in for a long time.
0: Yeah. Uh, First step is stop spending more now. What did Joe Biden do this year? Well, just a couple months ago, he rammed through this bill called the Inflation Reduction Act. I don't think I've seen a more Orwellian named bill. The Inflation Reduction Act uh, spends three quarters of a trillion dollars more. This is on top of the uh, five trillion or so in, in deficit spending that he's added in his short time as the president of the United States, which has caused inflation. The first thing you have to do is stop. I also think we need structural protections in place to make sure it doesn't happen again. So I've introduced legislation called the Price Act that would require that anytime inflation goes above 3%, it would trigger a circuit breaker. And that circuit breaker would require any spending bill passed once we're in that zone, would require a three-fifths supermajority in the Senate to pass. That way they couldn't ram through things like the uh, Inflation Reduction Act on a simple majority vote or the $1.9 trillion spending boondoggle they passed last year.
1: How do you get the backing for that?
0: Uh, you get the pack backing for it by getting enough senators to vote for it. After they hear from all their constituents, all of the federal spending that was supposed to help us is making us poor. It's making us so that we can't afford our cornflakes and our gasoline and everything else that we need to live.
1: The White House says it's a, a spending bill that if you wait long enough that it'll have some traction. Do you believe that there's any truth in that? Yes. That maybe three, four, five or six years down the road that it may uh, help with all the money we spent?
0: If you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you. Uh, In fact, I've got a whole lot of bridges to sell you. It's not true. That's the oldest trick in the book. Uh, You put together a package that spends a whole lot of money up front, and then you promise back-end budgetary reforms, back-end budgetary constraint occurring at the end of a 10-year budgetary window. Those savings never really materialize.
1: Evan McMullen uh, one of his biggest criticisms of you is that you're a no man and you just vote no on things. Your no votes are obviously because uh, the spending packages are large. One of them he talks about is uh, the bill that was supposed to help with the burn pits and the veterans. What is your answer to voters on that? Because obviously these are uh, bills that tug at the heartstrings. They're important for veterans, but tacked on, there's also a lot of money that has nothing to do with these bills.
0: I voted against that one. Not in spite of support for veterans, but because of it. I'm proud of my record supporting veterans. I Voted against that bill because I want to make sure that the money's there to support the veterans. That bill was written in a fundamentally flawed way that didn't protect the victims of of other issues, of other conditions.
1: It was very specific. To hold
0: them harmless. Yeah, this one had an open-ended guaranteed line of payment uh, into this particular category of victims without adequate constraints in place that could and ultimately would, and I protect, predict, unless we change it at some point, uh, will likely deprive other veterans of services and care that they need and that they deserve. We tried to amend that out. I offered up amendments. So did several of my colleagues. Chuck Schumer and the Democrats wouldn't allow us to even debate those amendments, much less vote on them. And so, yeah, I, I, I voted no. And Sometimes you, you you have to vote no. Even when a bill covers a topic you care deeply about, because you care about it, people who lack the courage to vote against something like that, lack the courage to stand up to really bad choices that hurt people.
1: Looking from a distance, when I look at Congress and a lot of the bills that are spent, sometimes I don't understand, and I'm probably like a lot of other people, you know, what's in the bills, uh, how much money's going to where, and I think that's one of the biggest concerns Americans have, is that sometimes we have these massive spending bills where you just don't understand where all the money's going. You've been in the Senate uh, for almost 12 years now and haven't been able to change that. You vote no, obviously, because you don't support the spending, but how do we get to the point where people if they don't support these massive spending bills can get back to voting on single issues and if not single issues smaller packages of issues because it seems like that's where a lot of our problems are. How do you fix that problem?
0: Heidi, that is exactly the objective and the way you get there is to have more people willing to vote no and more people willing to vote no saying we need smaller more digestible bills particularly when it comes to spending and regardless of the size of the bill we need more time to debate, discuss, and most importantly, amend the bills. Because right now the way it happens is you have a small handful of people uh, who go behind closed doors and write up spending bills, sometimes that spend a trillion or two trillion dollars at a time, and they bring it forward at the very last minute. We had one that came forward, for example, in March of 2018, written by its very small handful of members of Congress. emailed it to us on a Wednesday night at 8.37 p.m. Uh, I opened the document. It was 2,232 pages long.
1: So there's and physically no time to read
0: it. The House of Representatives passed it before lunch the next day. The Senate passed it the following night in the middle of the night against my uh, opposing vote. I called President Trump asking him to veto it. I was screened out uh, until after he had signed it. He called me on the airplane on the way back to Utah and told me, I, you know, I, I already signed it. There was, uh, we had no choice. And I told him, Mr. President, that was wrong. You, uh, you got bad counsel from your staff. It was not too late. You're the president. You could have vetoed it. You should have vetoed it. Um, the good news is we're getting a few more people every year who see the problem. And I predict this year we're going to get a lot more people who see the problem because we've seen what happens when Washington spends too much money. It's not a victimless crime. the The victims are poor and middle-class Americans, hardworking people who are living, sometimes paycheck to paycheck or nearly so, who are less able to afford the things that they need, all because a few handfuls of politicians in Washington want pats on the back and praise in the media for voting for a spending bill. They can always point to something good that it does for good, deserving people, but not taking into account the harm that it might cause.
1: Let's talk what we're talking about spending right now, gas prices, and I think that's something that hits a lot of families hard right now. Nationally, we are seeing the prices go down, but here in Utah, we didn't get that luxury. I think we're probably at about four twenty a gallon right now. In parts of southern Utah, they've been paying close to four sixty a gallon, and it seems like those prices are going up. How do we solve this problem? I know that there's a lot of talk about going to electric vehicles and maybe putting our eggs in other baskets. But right now, most of us have gas-guzzling cars, and we have to be able to run those cars and can't necessarily buy a new one. How do we solve this problem? In the near end and then also looking to the future?
0: Uh, American energy independence is key and we've got to take advantage of the fact that we've been blessed with a land that's rich in energy resources. We've got to develop those. The first thing Joe Biden did the day he took office was to issue an executive order calling for imposing a moratorium on oil and gas leasing. Uh, That by itself starts to stop up the, the metaphorical pipeline of of development. He also halted the Keystone XL pipeline, uh, something that would have contributed further to North American energy independence. This series of policy changes, coupled with saber rattling from the president and members of his administration, suggesting that we want to end fossil fuels, together with the ESG movement, which they support, making it very difficult to finance oil and gas drilling and development projects have led to a limited supply. When demand is still strong, you restrict the supply, the prices are going to go up. So what does President Biden do? Well, he releases oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in a blatant, shameless election year uh, ploy to make it look like prices are going down. But he's making the country less secure. That's not what it's there for. It's not there to provide a buffer to a president worried about a rough midterm election. No, it's they're to provide for us in a national security if we get attacked or something like that. Then he goes to Saudi Arabia, hat in hand, on bended knee. They, of course, say no. So, look, we've got to develop the stuff at home. This is exactly why prices have gone up. Bad regulatory policy, dismal energy policy. Uh, we've got to reverse that stuff. We've got to stop it. To do that, we need a Republican Senate
1: speaking of energy policy as we move towards the future we probably can't have all just gas cars or all electric what is the answer if we do more move towards evs or other options out there do we need nuclear is that safe for utah what are the best options because we still have coal-powered plants we have uh, a lot here in utah that is a concern for people who are worried about the air but it's hard to get rid of everything all at once what's your vision for moving forward with the future where we can keep our air clean, but also keep society running?
0: When we're talking about electric power generation, I'm kind of an all of the above guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, look, um, um, I don't think we ought to be shutting down our coal-fired plants, especially as coal-fired plants are getting cleaner, uh, until such time as we've got enough baseload power that's safe, clean, and affordable, uh, uh, as, as, as coal is in many respects and, and to a degree. You can't take those things offline until you've got something else to produce it. So you've got to have something else. Now, I personally think we ought to rely a lot more on geothermal than we do. We've got a lot of geothermal resources here in the state. Uh, I've pushed for legislation to make it easier to develop those, and uh, a lot of it uh, involves permitting processes that can be difficult and time-consuming. I think we could streamline those. I am also a believer in the fact that uh, small modular nuclear Uh, Electric power generation can be made safe and and effective, zero emissions. There are um, thorium salt reactor models that if followed, if deployed, if we can streamline the permitting processes for those, those actually produce a different waste stream that's less deadly than what you see out of the more traditional uranium reactor model. I I think we've got a lot of opportunities. We don't have tidal power resources here because we don't have an ocean. But in coastal areas tidal power can supply an enormous amount of zero emission electric power
1: Uh, moving on now to student loan forgiveness there's a lot of families here in utah who are probably relieved that they will be without ten thousand or twenty thousand dollars of debt so far i think as of last night a million people had signed up for the new application from the white house and the biden administration for that loan forgiveness Does this make sense for um, certain pieces of the population or is this just a Band-Aid that doesn't really fix a problem? Where do you stand on the issue?
0: Well, it's between four and four hundred and fifty billion dollars. It's not really his to forgive. He doesn't have the authority to do it. And when he does this, it's going to contribute further to inflation. It's going to result in more escalating higher education costs. Uh, it, it's also a, a pretty brazen move, if you think about it, taking money away from hardworking Americans who didn't go to college, or some who who did and paid for it as they went or had already paid off what they did. It seems pretty unfair to them to be asked to pay for that. They'll be asked to pay for it uh, through a combination of taxpayer dollars and the, the pass-through costs uh, associated with inflation caused by this 400 to $450 billion giveaway. So yeah, this is wrong. Uh, we, we should never give that much power to a president. I don't believe we did give that power to the president. And uh, it's yet another indication that Joe Biden has abused his power.
1: My expectation is that this will eventually end up in Congress. I think it was Senator Romney who said maybe the most dangerous part of this, if you believe it's dangerous, is the expectation that maybe after the student loans are paid off right now, that the next generation of students, let's say my 17-year-old when he goes to college and builds debt, the expectation will be that that debt would be wiped out as well. Is this something that Congress is going to have to deal with moving forward to decide uh, something about higher education or how people are getting their loans? Because it seems like once you wipe out the debt for one group, that something has to be decided in the future, whether you're going to cover education costs for everyone or no one or change the process. Right, because otherwise it
0: can create something of an implicit expectation. I think the best solution may well be something that I've advocated for a long time anyway, which is to get the federal government out of the student loan business altogether. Let's remember why we got into it, why the federal government acquired ownership of federal student loans this way. It was created as a pay-for for Obamacare. They wanted a source of revenue. They wanted to be able to borrow money from those who buy U.S. Treasuries at a lower interest rate, lend it out to student borrowers at a higher interest rate, and take the difference and put it into the fund for Obamacare as as a pay-for. So this is wrong. It's resulted in a lot of students paying um, higher interest rates for their student loans than they would have to. The federal government is not good at a lot of things, it's there for a few basic purposes. We've gotta keep it focused on those things so that it can do the things that only the federal government can do, which is like fight wars, uh, uh, make sure that we have defensible borders, take care of our immigration laws, deal with interstate and foreign trade, uh, coining money and regulating the value thereof, and protecting intellectual property. There are a few other powers, but that's about it. Banking, being a bank, is not one of them. And it's not just the formality of it not being in the Constitution, it's that when the federal government starts to do things that it doesn't know how to do, that it's not really created to do, it gets distracted from doing the things that only it can do.
1: You mentioned wars and borders so i want to get to that in just a second but there's a lot of campaign ads people are seeing on tv some are coming uh, from the campaign some of them are coming from political packs when evan McMullen was in here i asked him about his debt where a lot of people have questions of why he didn't pay that off on the flip side uh, some of those attack ads are saying that you take a lot of money from special interests or big business if you're taking money from let's say big pharma does it make it difficult when you're actually a senator trying to make decisions and you're talking to constituents who have come to you with concerns let's say about big pharma whether it's the COVID-19 vaccine and possibly if they could have been injured by that or insulin prices does it make it difficult to make decisions when you know you've taken money from some of these larger companies
0: Can't speak for others I can speak for myself the answer is no not at all not ever Look I I uh, uh I frequently am on the opposite side of Big Pharma. I am a big proponent, as I mentioned last night in our debate, of uh, opening up the marketplace to allow for the importation of prescription drugs from countries that we trust. Countries with safe regulatory systems like Canada. I've teamed up with Bernie Sanders uh, of all people on that one. That's a free market solution. Big Pharma hates that. Now, if If Big Pharma uh, wants to support my campaign, I'm happy to take their donation. They know, and I certainly know, it buys them nothing other than if they like having me in the Senate, that's great. If they, they trust my approach, that's great. I make no secret about what I stand for. Under no circumstances does that make it difficult for me to do something simply because of a donation.
1: Abortion is a big issue as we head into this midterm election. Lindsey Graham is proposing a bill uh, right now that would go through a Congress that would ban abortions nationally, uh, going past the states that are making decisions right now after 15 weeks. Is that a bill that you would support?
0: No. I I am uh, unapologetically, unabashedly pro-life. And I believe that Roe versus Wade was wrong. The Supreme Court was right to overturn Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs decision. And I I believe that now that that wrong has been righted, the best way to save the most babies is to allow for that to occur at the state level. If we try to set up a national standard, a single national standard, my fear is twofold. Number one, that becomes the floor and the ceiling. A lot of states that would otherwise protect babies uh, earlier than 15 weeks couldn't or wouldn't, would decide, well, that's taken care of, we don't have to worry about that. But once you establish, the other problem is, once you establish a national standard, if your objective is protecting babies, you're going to have a situation, once that's in place, where the Democrats could come along and say, okay, all abortion is always legal everywhere, right up into the moment of live birth. Well, we know that because the Democrats in the Senate have called for a vote and taken a vote on precisely such a bill twice this year. I don't think we're at our best when we try to take an issue as to which there is no national consensus, an issue as to which there's no manifest need uh, or or even manifest authority for nationwide federal legislation in most circumstances, Uh, you know, barring uh, legislation dealing with things like federal funding for abortion or what happens uh, on government property or something like that. In the absence of something like that, we ought to let the states do it because there's no reason why it has to be us anyway and the states can do a better job of protecting more babies than we could with whatever we could get past at the national level. When you try to pretend that you've got national consensus in the absence thereof, when you try to force national consensus, in a sense, that's what Roe did. And it failed miserably. I, I think we're going to be much better off when we let each state decide how best to protect unborn human life. We will save more babies that way.
1: Let's move to the southern border right now. There's been a lot of talk after uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, even Governor Abbott, have sent some of the migrants that have come across the border, I believe there's beyond 2 million for the fiscal year this year, to other states that otherwise wouldn't be seeing uh, the crisis. Was it wrong for Governor DeSantis or Abbott to do that? Or was it okay because it got people talking and realizing it's an issue in states beyond the border?
0: I'm not quite sure I understand the question. Your premise of your question is that it might be wrong. Why would it be wrong for them to uh, uh,
1: Democrats say it's facilitate. human trafficking by moving yeah, them.
0: Yeah, that's a farce. That's a farce. They, that's a farce. To, to call it human trafficking would be to cast the same aspersion, the same accusation against government programs and the programs of countless leftist NGOs that. Pay for people to be flown or bussed from one state to another after coming into this country illegally. That's an absolute red herring. They should be embarrassed to make that argument. So it's certainly not that. If it's not that, I, I can't think of another reason why it would be wrong. And, you know, quite to the contrary, it showcases something. Those in Martha's Vineyard don't want people coming into their community who have come into this country illegally. Although they publicly boasted in the past when it was something that was happening in far and distant lands, only in poor communities, once they actually arrived, they didn't want them there. And they moved them out of there faster than Donald Trump would have.
1: So it obviously got people talking about the issue What will it take for Congress to take up DACA, to take up securing the border? Because I think both sides agree that there's an issue. I know when Republicans are in charge or Democrats or vice versa, the other side goes down to the border and points out that there's an issue. How do we fix this? President Trump, uh, whether you liked it or not, was doing something about it. That's been reversed. How do we get to a point where Congress can make some decisions, sit down and hash out something where we have a plan moving forward and there's a legal way for people to come into the country?
0: Yeah, Heidi, I've said for a long time, there's a lot that can be done in the area of immigration reform. I've long been a proponent of uh, updating and modernizing our legal immigration system and also of dealing with those who are currently uh, here in an unlawful status in the United States. There's no group of people uh, in that latter category more sympathetic than those who were brought here by no choice of their own as children, in some cases as infants, uh, but who were still in an undocumented status. I don't personally know anyone in either party, in either House of Congress, who believes that the answer is mass deportation of all those who are here unlawfully, uh, who were brought here as children or as infants. I do think something has to be done about it, but in order to have the consensus necessary to address it, we do have to have a secure border, lest people fear that we'll create uncontrolled waves of future illegal immigration. We were close, we were very close two years ago to being to that point. We had big plans for ways that we were going to be able to update and modernize our legal immigration system, ways that we were going to be able to address uh, uh, the, the vexing, long-term question of what to do with those who were here on an unlawful status. When for the first time in my adult lifetime, our southern border was secure. That provided a rare and pivotal moment where we could have done something. And then Joe Biden lifted the gates, opened them, and um, we, we've had millions of illegal immigrants come in since then. You're never going to get the political consensus necessary in congress to make those reforms that i described well there's no confidence in the border being secure and this is what's so tragic about it look so i so you
1: don't think congress can come to a consensus well, on it
0: well no i i i for the foreseeable future i think it is almost impossible for congress to come to a consensus while the border remains wide open and, and i want to make one thing very clear there there's a something of a, a there's kind of a racist assumption out there that suggests that anyone with an Hispanic surname or anyone who is an immigrant uh, from a Spanish-speaking country is in favor of illegal immigration, of just uncontrolled waves of illegal immigration. I've lived and worked among the poorest of the poor, recent immigrants along the U.S.-Mexico border for two years as a missionary. Many of these people had dirt floors, no indoor plumbing. One thing that they all feared and they feared uncontrolled waves of illegal immigration because it was their jobs, it was their children's schools, it was their livelihoods and their families and their safety that was impacted whenever there were uncontrolled waves of illegal immigration. And so th- this, is, uh, this is much more complex than many of the news media nationally like to make it into. It, this, this is something that's important to American national security and we do have to secure the southern border. It's not that hard. All you have to do is just continue following the law and enforcing the law. President Trump negotiated with my encouragement and, uh, and, and with me and many others, um, advocating for the program uh, uh, at, at home and with government officials in Mexico for the Remain in Mexico program. A simple policy change that would say if you come into the United States on land through Mexico and you're applying for asylum. You need to wait in Mexico while your asylum application remains pending. All they had to do was keep that intact. If they had kept that intact, our border still would be secure today and we'd be in a position to fix these. Right now, we're not.
1: So you believe it'll take maybe a split with Democrats and Republicans in Congress where one has control of the House and one has control of the Senate where you can sit down and hash out a deal?
0: Uh, perhaps, but what I'm saying is I don't believe that will happen. There is a condition precedent for that to happen. The southern border has to be secure. It can't just be done without that. Now, in theory, if you had, uh, if you had a, a Democratic supermajority um, in the Senate and a strong Democratic majority in the House and a Democratic president, it might happen. I don't think we're going to get to that point because Joe Biden's policies, including his failed border policy, which has led to a, a huge raft of, of human trafficking, which has led to uh, enormous volumes of fentanyl being brought into this country illegally, enough to kill many millions um, of Americans. Um, w- with those in place, this isn't going to happen. And they're not going to get those majorities because they shouldn't. With inflation compounding those problems, with the fact that we've got a president who's not all there, we need now more than ever a Republican majority in the United States Senate.
1: We're just about out of time here. Last night, people who watched the debate saw some fireworks off the top. When they were talking about the certification of the election, you did vote to certify. A lot of people have questions about January 6th. Is there anything you still wanna let people know about that time? Yeah,
0: look, as I explained last night, in the days and weeks leading up to January 6th, there were rumors circulating suggesting that some states uh, uh, were considering a move to change their slates of electors, of electoral votes. Now, had those rumors been true, that would have been something I would have needed to know as a U.S. Senator, because we have an obligation to open the votes and count. It's rare that you get multiple slates of electors from one state. It happens every so often. It happened in 1960 with the votes uh, from Hawaii. They had two sets of electors. Uh, One voted for Kennedy, the other voted for Nixon. The Kennedy votes were deemed to be the authentic one, the one reflecting the true result of the election. I did some investigating. I made a bunch of calls to figure out whether those rumors were true. The rumors were false. On that basis, I voted to certify the results of the election.
1: Before we let you go, final word that you would want people to know before they rip open their ballots that'll be on their kitchen counters in the next few hours or days.
0: If you're one of those Utahns who's struggling to make ends meet, struggling to keep a roof over your head, uh, uh, to keep your, your, your kids, uh, not just in braces, but even you know in school and ready for school, keep your kids fed, uh, to keep up with your, your bills. And you keep wondering why you can't seem to stay ahead of things financially. Has a lot to do with the fact that your dollar's not buying as much today because of Joe Biden's administration, because he's got a rubber stamp Congress that's willing to ram through uh, Trillions of dollars of deficit spending. When you do that all at once, it's just like printing money. It makes your dollar buy less. It means that for every hour you work, you're able to buy less food or gasoline for your family. If you want to turn this around, we can do it, but we need a Republican majority in the Senate. We only have one Republican candidate in this race, and that's me. My opponent was... Uh, endorsed by the Democratic Party. He voted for Joe Biden. He's praised Joe Biden's policies relentlessly. He's criticized the Republican Party and attacked it mercilessly. He's raised millions of dollars from Democratic donors on the Democratic donor network called Act Blue. He spent back $1.6 million of that in the last quarter alone back into the Democratic industrial complex. Uh, 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 political consulting firms whose Sole clients are liberal candidates and causes. If you want a Republican majority, you need to vote for me.
1: Senator Mike Lee, thanks so much for being with us and being part of the conversation. The election's November 8th, but it's really whatever day you want to vote. Thanks so much for being with us, and we will join you again next week. Thank you.